strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Hi and welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Robin. And I'm Jen. And today's episode is about a river that changed America. All right then. This is about the Cuyahoga River. The name is from a Mohawk Native American word meaning Crooked River. This river is located in the United States in northeast Ohio that runs through the city of Cleveland and feeds into Lake Erie. As Cleveland emerged as a major center for manufacturing, the river became heavily affected by industrial pollution, so much so that it caught on fire at least 13 times. I always think it's insane when water catches on fire. <laughs> it's not the water, it's the stuff on top. Yeah, yeah, just the weird oil and all the shit on top. Pollution. Gross. So picture this, right? It was the summer of 1969. Free love. A recent high school graduate named Tim Donovan needed a job to pay for his college tuition. When it came to well-paid summer jobs in Cleveland, there was one good place to look, and that was in steel mills. Donovan went to work as a hatch tender for Jones and Laughlin Steel, standing on top of machines that were stationed along the river to help unload the carriers. He once said, the river was a scary thing. There was a general rule that if you fell in, God forbid, you would go immediately to the hospital. The water was almost always covered in oil slicks, and it bubbled like a deadly stew. Gross. Sometimes rats floated by, their corpses so bloated that they were the size of dogs. So when the rats can't live, you know you're in real Mm -hmm. trouble, because, you know, when we're all gone, the rats, the rats will be king again. (laughs) It was a disturbing sight, but it was also just another reality of the conditions of the city. For more than a century, the Cuyahoga River had been prime real estate for various manufacturing organizations. Everyone knew it was polluted, but pollution meant industry was thriving, the economy was booming, and everyone had a job. The Civil War turned Cleveland into a manufacturing city almost overnight. The river, just south of the city downtown area, moving for 100 miles across Ohio and emptying into Lake Erie, made it the perfect place for factories to set up. American Shipbuilding, Sherman Williams Paint Company, Republic Steel, and Standard Oil all rose up from Cleveland, and the river bore the toxic legacy of their successes. To no surprise of anyone who worked near the river, an oil slick on the river caught fire at 11.56 a.m. Sunday, June 22, 1969. A train passing by over one of the bridges that spanned the river through a spark which ignited debris that had accumulated on the river surface. The blaze only lasted about 30 minutes, extinguished by land-based battalions and one of the city's fireboats. It caused about $50,000 in damage to to railroad bridges spanning the river and earned a small amount of attention in the local press. The fire was so small and short-lived that no one managed to get a simple picture of it, but that didn't mean it went ignored. Time magazine published an article about the fire with a picture from a similar incident back in 1952. National Geographic also featured an article in their December of 1970 cover story titled Our Ecological Crisis, but they managed to get the date wrong. I mean, and they also are talking about it a year and a half after it happened, so Mm -hmm. there's And since there's no pictures of the evidence, it's kind of... By the 1870s, the river had served as an open sewer and dump site for long enough that it was already threatening the city's water supply. 
1922, engineers at the Water Department of Cleveland tested a city's drinking water to respond to the claims that the water tasted medicinal, or like a carbolic acid. Their findings stated, the polluted water on the river reached the water works intakes, and this polluted water contained the material which caused the obnoxious taste. Didn't say what it was for, didn't say kind of just completely kind of worded around it and just talked in circles. So they're just like, yeah, the water's polluted and it tastes bad. Yeah, exactly. The end. Everyone knew that the water was polluted, but no one cared. If anything, it was a badge of honor since it was a sign of success. That's really sort of tragic. I mean, it's not sort of tra- tragic. It is tragic that, yay, everyone has a job. Don't drink the water. Mm-hmm. Cleveland's industrial might was also helped by a New York native who moved to the city as a boy and became a bookkeeper before entering the field of oil refinery. That boy was John D. Rockefeller. In 1863, four years after Edwin Drake discovered oil in a field in northwestern Pennsylvania, Rockefeller built his first oil refinery, the Excelsior Refinery, on Kingsbury Run, a stream that ran through the city's east side and fed into the river. Seven years later, Rockefeller incorporated Standard Oil, which became the largest corporation in the world within a generation, and what was also called the first large-scale polluter of the river. So we can just blame Rockefeller, rich people. Am I right? Word. In the days before electric lamps, oil's biggest use was being refined into kerosene or paraffin for illumination. Gasoline was a byproduct that served no effective use until the internal combustion engine was developed and cost money to store. So Rockefeller simply dumped it into the river. Perfect. And that was... That's a great place for gasoline. And that was an obvious problem, since a series of cholera outbreaks forced the people of the city to start getting their water from Lake Erie. Immediately, they started to taste the petroleum in the water. The people who ran tugboats actually petitioned the city because the waste in the water was disintegrating the hulls of the ship. (laughs) Good lord. I mean, (laughs) wowzers. Since in the days before steel and concrete were standard material used in boats or any other type of construction, a lot of Rockefeller's construction was wood, which could easily burn or deteriorate. So I first started to talk about the river fire of 1969. I kind of mentioned a little bit of 1952, but just to let you know, 1868, 1883, 1887, 1912, 1946, There could have been more that weren't documented or that were ignored, and the precedent cover and the fire department records were both inconsistent, but right now, those are the only years that were confirmed. Oh, I like how you say only. Like, 13 Mm -hmm. isn't enough. No. There's actually no proof. Some people could have put it out real fast. If, for instance, 1969, there wasn't a photo of it. Why did it exist? Why, Why does anyone know about it? It's because everyone knew about it. But in this case, in... 1868 or 1874 or 1812 or any of these kind of other type of dates who knows how many more fires could have happened but not all fires were as innocuous as that of the fire that happened in 1969 some caused millions of dollars of damages and even killed people for example the fire of 1912 which killed five men 
when a standard oil barge leaked fluid into the river that ignited, burning to death these five men who were just recalking a boat in a nearby dry dock. This drainage could have been easily avoided and precautions could have been made. Leakage from oil anywhere should have been prevented by municipal regulations and factory inspections. But why would they ever stop the people who are bringing the money to the town? I mean, that's... You inspect your industry. After World War II, pollution was seen as a problem, not for its environmental ramifications, but because it was a potential turnoff for businesses, to the point where the local Chamber of Commerce formed a pollutions committee to lobby the cleanups. The biggest fire on the river was on November 1st of 1952, and it was a five-alarm fire that did about $1.5 million in damages. The conditions of the river, which said was to ooze, not flow, could no longer be ignored. There was a certain viscosity to it. Is that what they're saying? Thickness. No one likes that. No one likes thick water from, from my own experience. No one likes thick water. But even with the obvious toll on the landscape, regulation of industry was limited. It seemed more important to keep the economy booming and the city growing. This attitude was reflected in cities around the country. This river was far from only the river to catch on fire during the period. Baltimore, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Buffalo, and Galveston all used different methods to dispense oil on their waters in order to prevent the fires. Between 1952 and 1969, Cleveland lost about 60,000 manufacturing jobs. Deindustrialization took hold along the civil rights movement and protests against the Vietnam War. Over the years, people of Cleveland were hardly complacent about the burning river, but not until the 1970s did they actually begin to think of it meaning in anything other than an economic turn. The river evolves into one of the greatest disasters of the environmental crisis and tells us something about Americans' growing suspicion of industrial landscapes, a suspicion encouraged by the decreasing benefits that derived from such places. Environmental efforts were aided with the election of a new mayor in 1967. Carl Stokes, the first African-American elected to the position in any major American city, worked with his brother Lewis in Congress to push the environmental regulation. Even though the 1969 fire was small, two brothers helped shape public perception of it as a turning point. By 1968, the city was actively trying to clean up the river. That year, voters approved about 100 million bond programs to fund the cleanup, and the city attempted to approve its sewer system as to not pollute the lake. The story goes that it was the 1969 river fire that directly led to the establishment of the Environmental Protection Agency. And... One election in 2016 threatens to take the EPA away from us. (laughs) Good old Donnie Trump. Congress established the Environmental (sighs) Protection Agency in January of 1970 for the first time, creating a Federal Bureau of Overseas Pollution Regulations. In April of 1970, Donovan, the guy that I mentioned before, along with 1,000 other students, marched down the river for the country's first Earth Day celebration. The nation, it seemed, had suddenly woken up to the realities of industrial pollution. Yeah, I mean, without somebody there to watchdog, communities will just fall prey to these wealthy industrial complexes because they're dependent on them, right? And when a community is dependent on something, you know, it's like handcuffs, Mm -hmm. golden handcuffs. They're like, it's great that everyone has a job. It's great, like whatever. But then 
you're destroying the actual physical town and no one will stop you because if we stop you, you're just going to leave and take tens of thousands of jobs away with you. But when it's a more overarching federal sort of regulations, then everyone is accountable. And it doesn't matter where you go, you'll be accountable as an institution, as industry, Mm -hmm. no matter where you are, with that same level. So it's not like, oh, I can leave Cleveland and just go to Chicago. No, you're the same laws in Chicago. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's, uh, it's a, it was a big solve for that, for those communities. Absolutely. Over the years, the river transformed from a dump site to a place of recreation. Today, people are on the river kayaking and paddleboarding. Despite its new life, the river still shows signs of its former life. In 2008, EPA scientists tested dozens of sites along the river bottom and found that polychlorinated biphenyl, also known as PCB, their levels remain high. Other scientists have cautioned that the river is still burning, but with viruses, bacteria, and parasites, including salmonella, clostridium, enterovirus, giardia, and hepatitis A. Sexy. Those are all sexy diarrhea diseases, just in case you wanted to know. Those are all them. diarrhea diseases. I said them right. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at the doctor with me. You did great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but even with these remaining issues, the river is unrecognizable compared to what it was just 50 years ago. And this is the same for many waterways throughout America. I don't think I'd paddleboard in it. Um, People are paddleboarding in the, in the East River. I, I don't. I wouldn't do that either. I wouldn't do it. Um, but it's an option. Just wash your hands, mm-hmm. everyone. And if it gets in your mouth, you know, be, be worried. I got Giardia. It was, it was poor. It was, just, it was, it was a just, bad, just, bad time in my life. Just take, you know, just take a shower after, you know, you go, oh, you have fun, take a shower. Problem Make is sure if it gets everything in your is mouth. properly covered. Don't go, don't go skinny dipping. If you fall in the water and you get a little in your mouth. Um, bad things happen. I got Giardia at Seaside Heights in the Jersey Shore. I got knocked down by a wave and I got a mouthful of water and I shit weird and burped weird for eight weeks. Really? When was this? When I moved here in 1999. Oh, well, I never got sick from the Jersey Shore. Yeah. I'm I just immune to it though. That's why probably. I grab it. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. I was used to like Southern Florida. I'm just like garbage person. <laughs> so I was like, oh, man. like Southern Florida, like the water's so nice there. I came here, I was like, oh, the water's so not as nice and it's cold and it's rough. And it knocked me down and I got a mouthful. And the sand gets everywhere. And I didn't think much about it, but even before I actually left the beach, I already had the shits that day. Wow. I'm sorry. Yeah. Welcome to New Jersey. Yep. Yep. But you stayed, so. Uh-huh. I did. I did. Survival st- of the fittest. <laughs> you still go in the water when you want to. I still go in the water. <laughs> it didn't stop me. No. Um, but I wouldn't go in the East River. I, I'm not a huge freshwater person baseline, though. I love the freshwater. I, uh, I like to be in a boat on freshwater, I but I don't want to be in it with my body. I don't enjoy the weeds. I would... I don't enjoy the weeds and so many fishes that touch you. I'm not, I, I've never paddleboarded before. Lots of eels. But I would ride a jet ski on the East River if need be. Would you ride it in the Passaic River? No. 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 Same, same. Same, same. No, I, I, I see that river every I day. I just generally think that rivers are gross. Um, I mean, from history throughout history there's always some sort of 
sewage mm-hmm. issue and there's always industrial waste and I mean, well, not just that, to be super honest, just like the geese shit constantly. Like, I just can't deal. It's just well, a little too much for me. I think I kind of feel the same way about lakes, though. Lakes actually even like more because they're like um, stagnant. They don't even I like. They don't even have a current. I like lakes. I won't go deep because I need I, I can't I can't go anywhere. I can't see my feet in the bottom. Interesting, because when, I actually don't want to see the bottom of lakes because then that's when the weeds touch me and the, the fish are around my feet. Oh, and that no, creeps no, no, me no. out. Like if I'm lot. just swimming in something, I don't like to see like I don't like I don't like not knowing where the bottom is. Huh. So I would rather be on something. I'll be on a tube. I'll be on a on a sea dew. I would be on something. Right. What's a sea dew? A jet ski. I'd rather be on that and do that kind of recreational kind of stuff. You guys have to let us know if you all know what a sea do is. She said it so cash, like everyone knows what a sea do is, Jen. And I'm like, what the shit are you talking about, Robin? <laughs> but <laughs> sorry, this has been a real hard sidetrack into uh, water sports. Um, Robin wants to paddleboard in the East River. Today, Donovan works as the director of a nonprofit, Canalway Partners. And has spent years working to build a path along the river that will make it more accessible to all Cleveland residents. Because right now, not many people from Cleveland have access to this river. I mean, I'm not sure they want access to it. They kind of do, because right now they feel that the river is only accessible for the wealthy. And so it's a wealthy kind of privilege. And sure, so they want let the wealthy make it, get Giardia. They want to make it public. Let them shit for eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Maybe... He sees Maybe the no ri- hepatitis A for the people, the common folk. He sees the river in a total different way and says that nobody is going to be sitting on the river with bloated rats floating by. It reflects a changing perception of what's really important here. As of last year, for the first time in decades, the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency said that any fish you catch in the river is safe to eat. Huh. That is not the case here. <laughs> That, so that got to step up on us here in uh, good old tri-state area. That is the story of the Kehihoga River and the smoke on the water that sparked the environmental changes that altered the course of the country. Just another notorious narrative. If you enjoy our episodes, you can also go to patreon.com slash notorious narratives where you can access exclusive content. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to be notified when a new episode is available. Keep it weird and never stop exploring. <laughs>